It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 70, Saul, the Amalekites, and Generational Sin. 1 Samuel 14, 47 After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. In summary, Saul defeated the Ammonites to the east the Philistines to the west, the Moabites and Edomites to the southeast, the kings of Zobah to the northeast. Through constant warfare, Saul was forging the borders of Israel and war was about to come southward to the land of the Amalekites. But before war against the Amalekites, Saul turns his armies internally. From a strategic perspective, his campaigns have been a success, and it is excellent for Israel as Israel gets breathing room from her enemies, and Israel's borders get well defined. But when he turns internally and southward, Saul's actions will open many a door to Israel's enemies. For in this episode, Saul will commit many sins, three of them whose consequences will be felt in future generations, a perfect episode set up to define and give perfect examples for generational curses again. Let's start with the first one. This is where the Bible leaves out one of Saul's actions, but we hear about the consequences in 2 Samuel 21. The final four chapters of 2 Samuel are written like an appendix, and in 2 Samuel 21, we hear of a famine which is caused by Saul's genocide of the Gibeonites. Most scholars believe the timeline of this genocide occurs here, and the Gibeonites were settled quite close to Saul's hometown. Saul is a Benjamite, and he grows up near Gibeah, where the original Gibeonites come from. This is the same Gibeonites that surrendered to Joshua as Israel invaded the Promised Land, where they act like they are foreigners entering the land with stale bread and worn-out packs, but instead they were Israel's next victim down the road. Well, Joshua falls for the ruse, and accepts a peace treaty with the Gibeonites, and when he finds out he is duped, the people agree to not kill them due to their treaty. The extent of their judgment was enslavement as water carriers and laborers. Well, here are the Gibeonites. They're still living in the land. They were allowed, according to the long-standing treaty, to live in the land. The extent of Israel's mistreatment was slavery. Well, most likely, they had been living in the land and possibly sided with Israel's enemies. Saul attacks them and doesn't enslave them and have mercy on them like Joshua did, but he conducts a genocidal campaign against them. This was a great sin to do against the Gibeonites by not showing mercy, for Joshua gave his word to not kill them. Who was Saul to go against Joshua and the leaders and their original decision? Did Saul have a problem with the Gibeonites personally? We don't know, but we do know that they were neighbors, and it's entirely possible. Yet Saul was very ruthless. 
We'll find out later anyone who questioned his authority was his next target, David, Jonathan, and even the priesthood of Israel. The consequence of Saul's genocide was a famine in the land of Israel. The breaking of the treaty approved by Israel's leaders resulted in a famine. And I see it like this. The devil had legitimate legal right to steal from Israel when Saul did this, and he pulled out his legal card and used it, but not in the time of Saul, but with the next king in the time of David. Why use it during the life of Saul? Once Saul becomes demonized in the future, the devil had his man in the leadership role of Israel. Why not stow the card that there was a sin done by an Israelite leader and the devil had permission to steal? Why not save it till he really needed it? And without covering this too much, we'll leave out what David does to end the famine for a future episode or to those who read ahead in 2 Samuel 21. So this was the first of Saul's generational sins in this episode. Now that Saul has cleared the path against Israel's enemies, the southern border remains a subject of question. The Amalekites appear to be growing in strength and need to be dealt with to the south. Samuel shows up to bless Saul's actions against the southern enemies, the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 15 Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Teliam, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. So before we discuss the battle, if you want a little context, it's pretty intense, but here it is. Exodus 17:14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this down on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. It was the Lord who prophesied the destruction of the Amalekites. God, just like in the time of the Amorites, he delayed his judgment upon the Amalekites, possibly until the full measure of sin was made, just like before. He used Joshua to bring judgment to the Amorites. Now it is Saul who was commanded to be God's instrument of judgment against the Amalekites. And if you think it is strange, we are going back in time on this one to repeat a judgment word spoken in the time of Moses. Hang in there. We're just getting started. For we will be time traveling on this episode. For we will be jumping from generation to generation. And we will end further away in history into the east all the way to the Persian Empire. 1 Samuel 15, 7 then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Hevalah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle. 
the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Alright, check it out. Saul's gotten off pretty bad here. He didn't completely destroy Agag and his possessions. He kept the best for himself, and he allowed Agag to live. This is just the start of what Saul's troubles will be in this episode. Soon we'll see some awful behavior, and check out the pride factor coming up soon. God always sees the heart. 1 Samuel 15:10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. All right, we have to stop here. The Lord has seen what is in Saul's heart, and it was growing into disgustingness. It's way beyond simple obedience at this point. Something else here is that Samuel the prophet, in his despair of the Lord's word, caused him to cry out to the Lord all night. Imagine the travail going on in Samuel's heart to stay up all night in prayer. Reminds me of Luke chapter 6 verse 12, when Jesus prayed all night to God prior to the choosing of the twelve disciples. In this case, Samuel did the same, but but he was praying for his king. Jesus was praying for his disciples. 1 Samuel 15:12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on to Gilgal. Stop here. Seriously, Saul set up a monument in Carmel to his honor. This is so bizarre. We have to park it here. Saul has become so proud he didn't obey Samuel's word. Now he's setting up a monument to himself in Carmel. This is way beyond God's instructions for kings. Take note here, Carmel here is not Mount Carmel, south of the city of Tyre, famous for the Elijah showdown with King Ahab later. In this case, Carmel is the hilltop region inside the land of Judah. For Saul to go to this mountaintop and build a monument in his honor was extremely prideful and against the will of God. Reminds me of the three eyes of the devil in Isaiah 14. I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the assembly. This is the second of Saul's generational sins in this episode. The monument in this town was erected by Saul to reflect his glory, not God's. On the high place in this region, Saul built a monument documenting the new principality he allowed over the land. We learn of this new demonic principality when we learn of the principal landowner at Carmel dozens of years later in 1 Samuel 25, whose name is Nabal, whose name means fool. This is why we addressed folly in the last episode, because Nabal means fool. Saul, who had slipped into foolishness, opened so many doors by rejecting wisdom that the wisdom of the world was his modus operandi. Now he confirms his spiritual condition by building a monument to his foolishness, where a future leader, whose name means fool, settles and confirms that generations walk down the same sins of their ancestors. Now it gets interesting. When Samuel confronts Saul, 
give give a little context here. Saul is full of himself, incredibly high from defeating all of his enemies, and he just set up a monument to himself. One could even consider it an idol of himself as well. And from the other side, wild-haired, sleep-deprived, say it like it is Samuel, aggressively comes to confront Saul. So as we cover this section, consider the seriousness of Samuel and the shock of Saul at this confrontation. 1 Samuel 15, 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Abgag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So after the verbal showdown, Saul confesses to giving in to his men and not obeying the Lord for this reason. Most teachers and commentaries look at this and really focus on the, the Saul fear of man factor and how he failed as a leader because of this, that he gave in to the people because he was afraid of them. This is so true. Saul was consumed by the fear of man, but we also know Saul was full of rejection and was not compassionate towards God. He was not compassionate towards people. He hid in his baggage. He cursed his own son. He built a monument to his pride. He disobeyed God. And now God has rejected him. And the consequence in this case really will be awful. He will become demonized. And before we move on, check on the profoundness of Samuel's reply. 1 Samuel 15.22 So Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. I mean, isn't that incredible? I mean, Samuel was tapping in to a new covenant, a New Testament revelation that, that God was even beyond the sacrifices. He continues, 1 Samuel fifteen twenty three, For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. I mean, one could chew on these words for a long time. Rebellion is like witchcraft. The roots of witchcraft go back to rebellion, for rebellion is desiring to take power 
from the one in authority over you. What is witchcraft? It is the unlawful demonic access to spiritual power. Both are the desire for power. Isn't this so Jesus of Samuel to position this issue as an issue of the heart? For the rebellion of one's heart is like witchcraft. Samuel is so deep for his time frame. Take it further. Many decades from now, we will see Saul commit an awful sin at the end of his life. Not of rebellion this time, but when he calls upon a witch to help him out of his mess at the end of his reign. The next statement, arrogance is like the evil of idolatry, was Samuel's other statement. Isn't this deep? Arrogance is now referring to the monument that Saul set up in his own honor. It was a prideful, arrogant monument put up to his own glory, not God's. And we know what happens to most monuments in Israel. They become icons of worship later. Think about Gideon's prideful ephod that he built, which turned into an object of worship. Arrogance leads to idolatry. Deep Samuel revealing deep New Testament truths of the heart buried in the Old Testament. The account continues, 1 Samuel 15, 25. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord, Saul said. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being, that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. All right, intense, old, hairy, wise Samuel probably finally got his heart beat down after going there and possibly worshiping the Lord with Saul. You would think he would be ready to go home now. No, check out Samuel's next actions. 1 Samuel 15.32 We're going to flip to the New King James here because it reads something that NIV doesn't. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Yeah, that's, that is what it reads. Samuel cut Agag into pieces. Why? I have no idea. Oh, I, I, I am sure Josephus or someone has an answer or some detail that we could possibly connect to this. But in this episode, it's getting pretty long, so we'll just leave it be. I really can't imagine, nor do I desire to picture why and how in this case. But seriously, what wild action for such an old man. He had to have been at least in his 70s or older, which makes it even more bizarre. Well, the account closes this way, 1 Samuel fifteen thirty-four. Then Samuel went to Ramah, 
And Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, we're going to discuss the consequences of Saul's third evident generational sin, his disobedience when he didn't kill Agag and all of the Amalekites and their possessions. The Amalekites were kind of a mystery because David will later fight them as well. Saul clearly didn't destroy all of them, and it appears David doesn't eradicate the race either, for they continue from generation to generation. But the Amalekites as a people of note don't appear much in the kingdom age of Israel after David, except in a strange place, ancient Persia, around the time of 476 BC and the story of Esther and the character of Haman. Most biblical scholars agree Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites, a sworn, the sworn enemies of Israel. Some even state that there is a period of time between Haman's capture by Saul and his killing by Samuel that he had another child who was the ancestor of Haman. Regardless, Haman was an Amalekite, and God told Saul to eliminate the sworn enemies of Israel, the Amalekites. He did not do this, and the result is the story of Esther. And to add endless interrelations to this multi-generational story in this episode, Mordecai, her adopted father, Esther's adopted father, was a descendant of Saul himself as well. Esther, a secret Jew in the palace of Persia in 476 BC was married to Xerxes, the king of Persia, from the book of Esther. And yes, this is the same Xerxes from your history books that invaded Greece, but I can tell you he did not look like that weird dude in the movie 300. Xerxes had many advisors. One was Mordecai, and his main advisor was Haman, the descendant of the Amalekites and sworn enemy of the Jews. Haman convinces Xerxes to sign a decree that all Jews were to be exterminated on a specific day. But when Esther, who keeps her faith a secret from her king, finds out, she approaches the throne of Xerxes and eventually tells the king that she will be dead with all the other Jews because of Haman in this decree. And when the king discovers he was duped by Haman, he hangs him on a gallows set up for Mordecai. So if you're watching One Night with the King or a host of other movies about Esther, sometimes the first scene is not Esther or Mordecai or Xerxes. It's typically Saul in his battle with the Amalekites and the remaining survivor of this attack, King Agag. The man many believe to be the ancestor of this future trouble for Israel, Haman. I told you we would jump around in this episode, and here we are ending the episode in the ancient city of Susa in the Persian Empire with Esther. Now let's turn history upon itself and direct it at you, the listener. Generational sins are a horrible thing. In a short span, Saul impacted generations in a terrible way. Let us be a people who walk in grace and honor and integrity of heart. And let the fear of the Lord rest upon us, 
this body of people to teach and to guide us in the way everlasting so that our children and their children and their children will not have to face the consequences of our mistakes so many, many years from now. Instead, let it be said that those learn and love biblical history, that our children and our descendants will walk in God's glory and generational blessings. And let it be said of us that special blessings, not curses, land upon our descendants. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we finally arrive at a shepherd boy who's going to turn Israel upside down. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com.